You know, one of my favorite meals to fix is a dish that we call chili mac. And I know everyone's got their own version of chili mac and means sort of whatever you think it means to you. But uh, chili mac for us is a sort of a meaty and spicy uh, sauce that's fixed over cooked spaghetti noodles. And it contains ground beef and onion and bell peppers, uh, celery. It contains tomatoes and tomato sauce. It contains uh, both chili chili powder and, most importantly, Maxine chili powder, which is hard to find. Sometimes you got to buy it online. Well, you know how it goes. You brown the meat. And uh, you drain the meat, and then you add all the other ingredients to it. And so you add the spices and the tomatoes and everything else. And this is very important. This is the most important thing. You cook it for an hour on low heat. Now, the reason that that is so important, why one hour, why low heat? It's because of a very important principle in life. You can't cheat food. You cannot cheat food. See, cooking food is a metaphor for life. If you start breaking the rules for cooking food, then you're going to end up with raw food or burnt food, neither one of which you want. And life is the same way. See, God designed life to be lived a certain way. And you have to follow the recipe. Now, just like cooking food, there's a lot of recipes for life. There's a lot of recipes depending on what kind of dish you want to fix. And depending on which way you want your life to go, there's a lot of creativity, a lot of ingenuity, a lot of options that you have. And you can, you can fix a certain uh, life recipe and end up with a certain life dish. You can fix another life recipe and end up something completely different. It's up to you what life recipe you want to use, but you have to follow that recipe if you want to to have success, if you don't want to get burned, or if you don't want to have something that's left raw. Here's another principle. The ingredients in your recipe dictate the manner in which you cook them. That's true for cooking, and it's true for life, too. I mean, you cannot put tomato sauce on high heat. You can, but you're going to end up with scorched tomato sauce and then undercook the rest of the tomato sauce and it's going to be untasty. It's going to be perhaps inedible. With chili mac, you want to go back to that low heat for one hour and see what you can do when you have everything put in that pot and you're going to cook it on low heat for an hour. You can put that dish, that pot, on the back burner. And the back burner is a wonderful, wonderful place to be. Some of the best foods are put on the back burner and left to just marinate for a long time. And some of the best people, likewise, are put on the back burner. I mean, some of the very best people in life that you'll ever meet are not the flash-in-a-pan type of person that says, Hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. But rather, it's the person that God takes a long time cooking and preparing. They may not be famous. They may not scream, look at me. But they're right there on the back burner, marinating, because God's going to do something very special with them in His perfect timing. 
Now, here's the reason I'm telling you about Chili Mac in church. When you put all of these ingredients together and you first put them in the pot and you first start to cook them, it's nothing special. I mean, it's just seemingly a bunch of random ingredients in a pot. But once it starts to cook for a while, well, something magical happens. After a while, the aroma of those spices begin to fill the air. And the veggies and the tomatoes, that aroma just fills the air. It fills the kitchen, but it cannot be contained in the kitchen. That aromatic siren song slowly wafts its way throughout the rest of the house, calling out everyone, drawing them toward the chef's creation. And the chef must inevitably use wooden spoons and other utensils to fend off the invaders from tasting his dish too early. The ingredients are the same at the beginning as they are at the end. But something happens in the process that gives that dish life and meaning and purpose. And that's the way it is with a lot of things in life. For example, go back in your mind, those of you that are married or have been married to the first time that you met the person who became your spouse. That person, she is the same person then on that day that she is today, except in the process of getting to know her and living with her and loving her, something has become very much alive. She became much more than simply an acquaintance that you met on a certain day. All of that time together drew out the love that was within you, those ingredients that were within your heart and the ingredients within her heart. And obviously, both of you are still the same person that you were many years before, but, but now, over the process of time, both of you have been changed. I'll give you another example. There are times in your life when you come across a new belief, something that you previously didn't know, something that you previously may not have believed, but it's new to you, and at the very beginning, this new belief seemed, seemed maybe mundane, maybe a little bit interesting, but if you went ahead and accepted that belief and believed it, the more time that belief marinated in your heart and the more the, that belief was confirmed to you by other people, the more that belief became alive and real and fulfilling. And that's what happened many centuries ago to a teenage girl named Mary. This teenage girl had her life interrupted one day by an angel from God named Gabriel. And Gabriel brought Mary a most incredible message to believe. And I'm just going to read to you in the first chapter of Luke this encounter. And Gabriel said to her, now listen, you will conceive. And give birth to a son, and you'll name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. I mean, this is an incredible thing to throw upon a young teenage girl. This message is incredible to believe. 
And here was Mary's response at the beginning. At the beginning of this process that she was about to go through. She was going to be the same young lady at the end of the process. But at the beginning, this was her response. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? Since I have not had sexual relations with the man, the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth, even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month of her who is called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, and she responded this way, she said, See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. That was her only response. May it happen to me as you have said. And so she believed the angel. And immediately, as you know the story, she packed up. She, le- she left and she went to go see her relative Elizabeth. And Elizabeth herself confirmed the message that the angel gave her. And we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 42 and through 45, Then Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. You know, at the very first, for Mary, the idea of having a child, even though she was a virgin, must have been a shocking idea. And for that child to be the, the one, the Messiah, the chosen one, who would inherit the throne of, of Israel for all time, it had to be almost impossible to believe. But Mary believed it. But that belief that Gabriel first presented to her on that one day, over time and through that visit to Elizabeth, that belief began to permeate in Mary's heart and Mary's mind. And when Elizabeth added her testimony to it, confirming to Mary what the angel had said, Mary's belief burst to life. Now, she had much more to say than simply, I am the Lord's servant, may it happen to me as you've said. She had much more to say now. And she sings a song of praise that permeated not only those who heard the song then, but that song of praise has wafted through the centuries into our own hearts today, if we take the time to listen. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because He has looked with favor on the humble condition of His servant. So Mary says at the very beginning, that she is thankful. And then she presents some reasons why she's thankful. She said, My soul praises the greatness 
of the Lord. Now you and I, we know what it means to praise someone, to praise something. We know what it means to praise. It means that we, we, we talk about it. Whatever you talk about and you're excited about, you're giving praise to that thing. If you talk about a great football play, you're giving praise to those who pulled off the play. If you talk about your kids or your grandkids, as I'm sure none of us are ever guilty of doing, um, you're praising your kids. You're praising your grandkids. And by the way, let me just add this real quick. You ought to praise the people that are closest to you on a regular basis. They need to be encouraged often. You know, your kids need to be encouraged. Your spouse needs to be encouraged. Your, your grandkids, all of those that are, that are in your sphere of influence, you ought to be an encourager to them. Here's a good rule of thumb. Praise your loved ones once every day. And criticize your loved ones once a week. Okay? And if you, if you violate that, your, your loved one can say, Sorry, it's not Thursday night. You can't criticize me yet. <laughs> you have to wait. Praise a lot more than you criticize. It'll change you. It'll change them. Okay? Now back to Mary. God did something so incredible in Mary's life that she just had to talk about it. She just sort of burst forth in praise. Let me ask you a question. What has God done in your life that you should praise Him for? If all you can see right now in the days that we're living in is, oh, pandemic, oh, social distancing, oh, this, oh, that, woe is me. If that's all you can see, then you've lost sight of what God has done in your life. Let me ask you a few questions. Has God given you kids? For many of us, we'd be able to say yes. And praise God for that. Has God helped you in your marriage? Has God helped you through a hard time? Has God given you the provisions that you need for life? Has God saved you from your sins? Has God brought you into a loving relationship with Him? We've got a lot of reasons to praise God. To talk about Him. To lift Him up. And Mary had a reason to praise God, and, and, and so do we. In verse 47, she calls God her Savior. She said, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, when you praise God, when you lift Him up, when you talk about Him, think about the titles that you ascribe to Him. Think about the words that you call Him. God is your Savior. He is your God. He is your healer. He is your redeemer. He is your provider. He is your king. And we could go on and on. God is all of these things. And every one of these words means something a little bit different. Every one of these words ascribes a characteristic or an attribute to Him. And not only that, but if you think about it, every word that you properly ascribe to God is also a promise that God has made to you. When you call God your Redeemer, it is a promise that God has chosen to redeem you. When you call God your Healer, He has promised to heal you. When you call God your Savior, He has promised to save you. Every time you ascribe praise to God, let it be a reminder to you that God has made a promise in that realm to you. And you're the recipient. You're the benefactor. Or the, the, the one who benefits, I should say. Verse 48. Mary gives the reason why she praises God. And here's why. The Lord saw her humility. 
and the Lord rewarded her. This is what God does. This is God's business. This is God's MO. His modus operandi. It is his, the way he does things. God lifts up the humble. And God humbles those who exalt themselves. Jesus himself said in Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You think about biblical history, go back to the time of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon lifted himself up. He tried to take credit for the greatness that God had given him. Nebuchadnezzar thought that it was all himself, and so the Lord gave him a deranged mind. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven out into a field and began to eat grass like a cow. And his hair grew long and wild, and his nails became as long as bird's claws. God humbles those that are proud. In the book of Genesis, when mankind strove to become like God, man decided to get together and try to build a tower to heaven to try to achieve the heights of God and the power and the majesty and the strength of God. And so the Lord humbled mankind and confused their languages. You know, when you exalt yourself, the Lord will, absolutely will, without exception, He will find a way to humble you. But when you humble yourself before God, just as perfectly clear, the Bible tells us that God will exalt you. You can count on it. It is inevitable that this is a principle of life. It is an inviolable principle of life. You cannot violate it. Nobody ever has exalted themselves up that God did not humble. Mary considered herself as a humble young lady. She certainly didn't deserve God's favor. I mean, shouldn't the Savior of the world be born to royalty? Shouldn't the Savior of the world be born to someone who's famous or wealthy? Someone that had a lot of means by which to support this little baby? Why a little teenage girl? Why should the Savior of the world be born to her? But Mary also knew that this is the way God works. God has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant, she said. And he has rewarded her. In verse 48, we continue with these words through verse 49. Surely from now on, Mary says, All generations will call me blessed because the Mighty One has done great things for me. And his name is holy. What does the birth of this child, this holy child, mean for Mary? It means that she will be the one in history, the only woman in history, who has given birth to the Savior. And she calls God the Mighty One because God can do the impossible. She says His name is holy because God's nature and God's ways are not like man's nature, not like man's ways. And in the rest of her praise to God, as we continue this passage, Mary moves from what the birth of Jesus means to her to what the birth of Jesus means to her people, Israel. She says in verse 50, His mercy is from generation to generation on those 
who fear him. On those who fear him. God's mercy is not necessarily promised on those who refuse to fear him. But on those who do fear him, God will most certainly be merciful. You know, we've been living for the better part of a year in the midst of a pandemic, as you obviously know. And it's interesting to me where people are looking for relief from this pandemic. We've placed our trust in and cotton masks and social distancing rules that half of us refuse to follow, and a handful of vaccines that the CDC hopes will be effective. And so for the better part of a year, we've been living with a microscopic virus that has severely harmed our economy. It's injured millions of people. And we're told it's killed one out of every 1,000 people in the country so far. Think about it. The actual size of a COVID-19 virus is at its biggest one fifty thousandth of a centimeter. And it is partly responsible, we're told, for the killing of 100 times more people than were killed in the attacks on 9-11. Can you imagine a 9-11 type of event happening once every three days for a year. And in the midst of all of this death and suffering, we have yet to see a great awakening of people coming back to the Lord in repentance or even just in fear for their own lives. You know, personally, I hope that the masks and the rules... And the vaccines all proved to be effective, but I'm concerned that once again, we as a nation have left God out of our lives. We've left Him out of our faith. You see, our nation does not fear God. And as a result, our nation does not have the promise of experiencing God's mercy if God cannot get our attention with one out of every thousand people dying, what will it take? God will not be mocked, and he will not be ignored, not for long. It would do good for us to remember that the death rate, whether you have COVID or not, is 100%. This fact alone should cause us to humble ourselves like Mary did. And who knows, perhaps if, if our nation humbled ourselves before the Lord, perhaps God would visit us in His mercy. We're not there yet. We're not ready. Not ready to fear God yet, to acknowledge Him as the one who's in control yet. I do not see it. The good news is, that some of us, a remnant, do fear God. We do acknowledge God for who He is. And we can have God's mercy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. Mary continues in verses 51 through 53. She says, 
God, through the birth of Jesus, has done, had done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Mary talks about the arm of God. The arm is a symbol of strength. She's talking about God's strength. You know, our God is a strong God. No one is stronger than our God. We need to fear no man because our God is stronger. And Mary speaks, notice very carefully, she speaks in the past tense about something that will happen in the future in these verses. That means that she was so convinced, she was so confident in God doing these things that had not yet been done that she could speak about them in the past tense as if they had already happened. Verses 51 through 52, she says, He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Again, this is what God does. God flips everything on its head. The proud will be humbled. The humble will be exalted. Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember that story? And in that story, the rich man was told that while he was on the earth, he had everything. He had great wealth. Lazarus, on the other hand, had nothing. But now that both men had died, Lazarus has everything for all eternity. And the rich man, he has nothing. He has nothing in hell. This is what God does. He flips everything on its head. These are God's ways. Now in the final part of Mary's song of praise, she says that the birth of the Messiah means that God's long-standing promise to Israel's patriarch Abraham has finally been fulfilled. She says in verses 54 through 55, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. When God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and told him that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, Abraham believed that message, although it had not been fulfilled. When God spoke again to Abraham in Genesis 15, the Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed, and that belief was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so Abraham had a saving faith in God. When God confirmed this in Genesis 17, when God confirmed this again in Genesis 21, over and over again, God is speaking to Abraham, and Abraham believes the message, the promise that God has promised him, and yet Abraham in his lifetime never saw the promise of God fulfilled. And that promise was the same promise Hundreds of years later, when Moses came on the scene and Moses believed the promise. And the, that same promise, hundreds of years after that, when King David was on the scene. And when the prophets came on the scene. And yet none of those times was the Lord's promise to Abraham fulfilled. But now, God says to an insignificant teenage girl, 2,000 years or so after Abraham. It's time. I'm fulfilling my promise now. Through you, Mary. And Mary gave praise to God. You know, God always keeps His promises. 
Sometimes we get a little bit impatient. We wish that the promise for healing, the promise for provisions would be given to us yesterday. What's taking so long, God? God always keeps His promises, but He does it in His perfect timing. In the meantime, like Abraham, like Moses, like David, like the prophets, we have to have faith that God will do this in His perfect timing. There's another promise that we've been waiting for as as the church for 2,000 years. We've been waiting for Jesus to come back. For this child that was born in the manger, who died on a cross to pay for our sins, who rose from the grave to give us life, who ascended to heaven as the Lord over all, we're waiting for Him to come back. And the world mocks us. The world says, oh, what's taking so long? If, if Jesus was going to come back, He would have come back already, and they mock us for our faith. And that's okay. The world can do that. In the meantime, we must continue to have faith in the promise of God. Why? Because there is not one promise that God ever made in the past that He's broken. Why would we ever doubt the fact that God is going to keep this promise, the promise of the Lord to return, the promise of the Lord to establish His kingdom on earth and to rule from earth for millennia and after that recreate the world and the heavens? Why would we ever doubt that? God always keeps His promises. And the greatest promise that God has made that can be fulfilled in your own heart and mind today is this simple promise. God has promised to grant forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And that's the invitation that I want to extend to you. That right now, in the quietness in this big room, you might just turn to the Lord and ask Him to save you. If you do that, the Bible says that God saves everyone who calls on Him. If you call on the Lord, He'll save you. It's that simple. Would you do that today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross, who rose from the grave. We believe what the Bible says about Him, and Father, we trust in Him today. And Father, I pray for anyone who might be struggling with this issue, listening to this message. For some reason, there's some some part of doubt in their hearts. There's something going on that's blocking them, keeping them from making a full commitment to believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would remove those blinders, remove that doubt from their heart. Let them say, yes, today is the day. Today is the day of my salvation. Today is the day that I trust in the Lord. And Father, I pray that your promise again like it was with me so many years ago, with so many people in this room, that your promise will be fulfilled in that person's heart, the person who believes today. Grant them forgiveness and eternal life, and Father, we'll give you all the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.